Well, good morning again. You appreciate that testimony from Chris? That was wonderful. If you brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would invite you to find Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Otherwise, the scripture will come up. In the midst of this series, which is titled The Sanctification Service of the Saints, we are doing a series within the series titled Unpacking the Christian Life. As we work through Romans chapter 12, having followed the, the dedicatory part, you know, you know in the, because of the mercies of God in your life, that is, if you're a Christian, you've experienced those mercies, you should present your body a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? Holy, acceptable to God, it's your reasonable service, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may... Know what that is, that good, perfect, acceptable will of God. Romans 12.1 follows Romans 1 through 11, which deals with salvation. Romans 12.1 and 2 deals with dedication. Romans 12.3 through 8 deals with the use of our gifts. You might recall that message, know yourself, find your place, use your gift. And then in verses 9 through 21 we have what we're calling unpacking this dedicated life or unpacking the Christian life. So that's the reason why we read it every time so that you can see the whole package while we look at little packages within the package. If I haven't confused you yet, this is look at the scripture beginning in verse 9 where it says, Let love be genuine or unhypocritical, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. So, I want to get right into this this morning and look at the next chunk and we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 15. Because again, this is a very difficult passage to sort of outline. It just, just sort of a, almost in staccato-like fashion, just Paul keeps throwing all of these things out that are the stuffing of this individual who is a dedicated believer. And I see these two going together pretty well. And so I'm subtitling this message today, Making It Real. Here's verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Rejoice with those who rejoice, verse 15, and weep with those who weep. So just two things 
if you please, two ways to make, to make it real. Because I'm thinking that many here are claiming to be Christians. Some of you have the honesty to admit that you're not. And as we say every week, we're glad for you here. We want you to be drinking this in. We want you to be thinking about what the scripture says here. If you're not a Christian, may God draw you into his house today. And if you are, I want you to be honest with yourself here too. Do you look like this Christian when it comes to making it real? Here's the two ways I want to point out to you today you can make it real. Here's the first one. By reaching out both to insiders and outsiders. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Be hospitable. Show hospitality. The one is natural. The other is unnatural. Here's the natural. Contribute to the needs of the saints. This seems easy enough, doesn't it? Help our brothers and sisters in Jesus. We have strong warnings from both James and John. When you tell your brother be warmed and be filled, you don't give him his needs, you're bringing a problem upon yourself. John says something very, very similar. So there's strong warnings against ignoring the need of a brother. The word contribute here is, is the word koinoneo. It's very closely related to the more familiar word koinonia, which means fellowship, partnership, or sharing. That's the idea within this root word. And, and it carries the idea of mutuality or commonness. In other words, the contributing referring to here is more than just monetary. It's, it's more than just you're giving to somebody. Here, I'll give you 20 bucks. It involves your life. It involves your means. It involves your heart, your counsel, your love, your time, the use of your giftedness. This is what we are to be contributing along with the monies. And like salvation and like sanctification, this is where all ministry should begin. Contributing to the needs of the... The what? The saints, it should begin in the church. God always has an inside-out way of looking at things. Always. Work out your salvation. You know, what's taking place inside of you, let it come out. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Whenever we have opportunity, you should do good to all men, but especially to the household of faith, right? So it's always inside out. If you've got some bizarre thinking that your, your job is to help people outside of the church first, then you've got it inverted. And we're all about helping people outside of this church. But that's not where it starts. That's what he's saying here. So that's, it seems natural enough to help the saints. The unnatural is seek to show hospitality. Now, this word hospitality is built on two words, philos, which means, you know, to have affectionate love, and xenos, which means a foreigner or a stranger. Literally, this word means to love on a stranger or to love on a foreigner. When he says seek to show, that literally means to pursue. Some of your Bibles even translate it that way. That word was used... For a hunter, pursuing its prey, his prey, rather. 
As our, and he's talking about that with hospitality here. As, as our family began to grow and grow and grow, we, um, we got less and less and less invites over for dinner. Imagine that. I mean, I mean, besides the fact that a lot of people have to take loans out just to have us over, they didn't have the room. But we got it. Because that fact began to teach us to love hospitality. Kindness to strangers, especially people that were seeking and are seeking Jesus, or maybe having just come to know him. In baptism, as you just saw, a believer identifies with Jesus. But does Jesus ever identify with us? Well, the answer is a resounding yes in, in several ways. Let me give you a few of them. He, he identifies with us when we suffer. Remember the Apostle Paul just putting a wailing on the church? He wasn't the Apostle Paul. He was Saul at the time. Jesus meets him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you, what? Persecuting me. And Paul probably thought, what? What are you talking about? But you see, Jesus was identifying with his church. When his church suffers, he suffers. It's also true when we openly confess or deny him. He who confesses me before men, him will I confess before what? My Father in heaven. You deny me before men, I'll deny you too. Matthew 10. And then when we show hospitality. And you're familiar, you're familiar with that famous passage in Matthew 25 when he, you know, at the great judgment when men and women are standing before God and Jesus himself says, you know, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was in prison, you visited me there. And they're coming back saying, when did we do this? When you did this to the least of my brethren, you were doing it to? Jesus is identifying with the righteous acts of his saints as they reach out to others. I don't know about you, but I like the idea of Jesus identifying with me. What's more, hospitality becomes a virtual test directly from heaven itself. I know that because we're told, the writer of Hebrews says that you ought to be help, you ought to be being hospitable, Hebrews 13 and verse 2, here's what it says. I thought we had it. Maybe we don't. Here it is. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels, not even being aware of it. Angels are real. Angels are active. Angels are constantly ministering. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who shall be heirs of salvation? Have you ever read that? And angels are coming over for dinner. When we practice this kind of hospitality. At a recent Missions Conference, our missionary nurse from Bangladesh, Megan Vance, told the story, amazing story, earlier in her ministry there in Bangladesh. It was very early Easter morning. The sun had barely come up, and she was making her way from an event she had been at 
to home, and she realized that all her friends had separated from her, and she was by herself. That's not a good place to be in a Muslim country, especially one like Bangladesh, where there's a lot of upheaval. And sure enough, right around the corner, there were burning tires, and there was a riot that was about to ensue, and she was by herself. She had ways to make it to her apartment, and yet going back wouldn't have helped because she was about halfway there when she realized, I might as well just keep going. She saw a Muslim man, a dedicated Muslim man. His dress indicated that to her. And in that culture, if you want to be thought of as with another man and thus protected, you just sort of walk behind him because that's what women do in that country. So she thought to herself, I'll just get behind this guy and follow him, which is exactly what she did. And then to her joy, he turned the exact place she turned at. He turned again. He turned again. All the way to her apartment he went and then went to the keeper of the gate and said, I have returned your foreigner. And he walked away. She'd never seen him before. She never saw him again. So, but did you notice what he he said to the keeper of the gate? I've returned your what? What does the word hospitality mean? Love of a foreigner. God loves the foreigner. We should too. There may not be another subject in the New Testament that warrants the necessity of understanding the times and culture as the subject of hospitality. Hospitality in Bible times was regarded, are you ready for this? It was regarded as a right to the traveler. It never occurred to the traveler to even thank the person who housed him because that's how much of a right it was. It was the duty of the host himself And the idea was because he himself might soon be dependent on another. It was unthinkable, diabolical even, to not show love to a stranger passing through. And this is the idea behind that eerie passage in in Judges 19, which looks so much like Genesis 19, where that Levite, during the days of the judges, when everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, comes into this town. He purposely goes into a town where people ought to be friendly to him because there's relatives in this town. But it's a town much like Sodom and Gomorrah. He sits in the middle of the city and he's incredulous because nobody is inviting him in. That's the backstory to that. It was unthinkable. In fact, If you stayed as a traveler, as a stranger in a house, you were literally considered the master of the house until you left. When Jesus sent his disciples out, you'll recall, remember what he said to them? It's in Mark chapter 6. I think we have this up there for you. Here's what it says. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, no belts, but to wear sandals, not put on two tunics, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off from your feet as a testimony against them. And we read this and we say, man, those guys were going in faith, weren't they? No, actually they were going in accordance with the culture. Now there was faith involved because if they wouldn't listen to the message, that's when Jesus says, you know, kick, kick the dust off your feet as if to say, I'm not bringing any of you with me. If you won't listen to the message. 
Hospitality, then, was regarded by most nations in Bible times as one of the most supreme virtues one could have. And it, all you got to read is the Old Testament. You see, all the, the law is replete with these admonitions to be kind to the stranger. You see it in Leviticus again and again and in Deuteronomy. And you have this line that keeps coming, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's a little reminder to you. And that's where the application comes in. Just who were you? Just who are some of you now? Outsiders, strangers, foreigners. And isn't this exactly how we are described before we are in Christ in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul writes, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of God, having no hope and without God in this world? If you are a Christian... You have been afforded the ultimate act of hospitality from God himself, inviting you into his house, and aren't you glad? So why not reciprocate on a smaller level? So there's, we're knocking the stuffing out of this guy that's called the dedicated Christian. And that first one, again, is by showing this kind of love, this kind of hospitality, reaching out to both insiders and outsiders in our lives. Here's the other point. It doesn't get any easier. I'm just going to warn you right now, okay? Here it is. By adjusting yourself to the joys and sorrows of others, I pray that you will memorize that statement. By adjusting yourself to both the joys and the sorrows of others. Verse 15, weep or rejoice with those who rejoice, right? Weep with those who weep. I have long defined uh, holiness. I've, what is holiness? Well, we know that it literally means to be separated or to be set apart, but I have given my own personal definition of holiness as adjusting oneself to God. Remember John says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, what, cleanses us from all sin, right? What does that mean? If we walk in the light, light in Scripture is a synonym for the holiness of God. And as if you come out of a matinee in the middle of the afternoon, you walk out in the bright sun, you can't even open your eyes, it's so bright. But as you walk in the light, your eyes begin to... There it is. And I think that's the idea behind personal holiness. just means I'm constantly adjusting myself to God. doesn't mean I got some list of do's and don'ts that I, have, that I agreed to. It means I'm walking with God, and I must constantly be adjusting myself, right, to his glory. Well, if personal holiness is adjusting oneself to God, then personal compassion is adjusting oneself to others to both their joys and their sorrows, both their highs and their lows. One's highest joys 
And deepest sorrows will often reveal who one's truest friends are. How they respond in these situations. Weep! Rejoice! But first, an enigma. The writer of Proverbs says that the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger cannot know its joy. Did I just contradict myself? Does the Bible contradict itself? Go like this. Well, I mean, if that's true, the heart knows its own sorrow, its own bitterness. A stranger doesn't share its joy. And yet it sounds like we have a command here to rejoice and to weep. Listen, here's the point. Nobody can know exactly what somebody else is going through. Can we concede that right now? I will never know your sorrow. I will never know your mountaintops. Not exactly anyway. When, when people would say to me when my, when my wife died, I know how you feel. I hated that because no, they didn't. And I never say that to people. I never tell people I know how you feel. Did you hear what I just said? I never tell people I know how you feel. Now, I might say something in jest, you know, welcome to my world and all those kind of things. But the truth of the matter is, nobody can perfectly relate to somebody else, but God can. That's a good comfort, isn't it? One might relate, but he can never absolutely know the thrills and spills of the heart. It's just that simple. You can relate but you can never absolutely know both the thrills and spills of the heart. But God does, right? Psalm 139, right? Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You, you know what I'm sitting down when I'm rising up. There isn't even a word on my mouth, but you know it all together. You know my thoughts from afar off. Uh, this knowledge is too wonderful. It's high. I can't attain to it, but I thank you, God, because you never, ever, ever misinterpret me, Right? Now, when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, this is very interesting. These verbs are not commands as such. These are not imperatives. These are not commands. They are infinitives. Now, I'm not going to get into what an infinitive is and sit there and confuse everybody here. Verbs, infinitives, imperatives. But understand this, an infinitive, basically, it's carrying the idea of your lifestyle. Just think lifestyle right now, okay? So like when Paul says to the Philippians, for me, to live is Christ, right? That to live, that's an infinitive. The idea there is, it's, he's my life. Jesus is my life. And what he is saying here is our lifestyle should be to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It should be our very lifestyles. Given the circumstance, I mean, we naturally, naturally, we rejoice at the birth of somebody in our family. We rejoice in the accomplishment of somebody in our family, our kids, our grandkids, our spouses. We always rejoice in the family, right? And we naturally weep when somebody dies in the family. We naturally weep when our daughter has a miscarriage. We naturally weep when some job is lost or some 
we struggle, we weep, we cry over our kids and our brothers and our sisters. It's natural. But God is saying here that under the supernatural makeup of the believer dedicated to Jesus Christ, it should be just as natural, just as much as a part of my life to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Let's look at it. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That's simple enough. It means to be cheerful with them, right? That might sound like the easier of the two, but it's probably harder for some of you. Seriously, when is the last time somebody told you, not in your family, somebody told you uh, something wonderful that happened in your life, and you're like, why wasn't it me? Why was I passed up on that deal? Well, you wouldn't say it, but you heard it in your heart, and you know it. I mean, it's baseball season. We're in the middle of, well, now nah, we're coming to the end. We're in the middle of the World Series anyway, so how about a baseball illustration? Any Cardinal fans here? <laughs> Sorry. You did make it to the championship. Remember the running Redbird? Lou Brock, who owned the base-stealing title for years, broke Ty Cobb's record. Tremendous baseball player, outfielder for the St. Louis Cardinals. But his record didn't hold it very long because here, along a few years later comes another guy from the Oakland Athletics called Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson not only breaks Lou Brock's record, he does it in 12 years, what took Brock 19. But here's the deal. When Henderson was about to break the record, 40,000 people packed the stadium in Oakland, and Lou Brock was there. He told Ricky Henderson, I'm not going to miss this moment. I'm so happy for you. And, and, and in fact, you did it seven years before I could do it. That kind of... That kind of magnanimous spirit is what God has called you and I to have in the church. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Do you rejoice in the joys and the accomplishments, the wise decisions, the temptations overcome? Yes, the positions that are granted, raises that are given, levels of authority of a brother or a sister in Christ receives. Do you rejoice with them? Are you rejoicing now? Or are you inclined to think, you know, what about me? Why does it always happen to him? Why does she always get the praise? Why was I overlooked? Listen, your response to the joys of others is a very good barometer of your true spirituality. I told you it doesn't get any easier, so here's the next one. Weep with those who weep. Now listen very carefully to this question I have for you. When was the last time you wept for someone else? Not within your physical family. When was the last time you wept for somebody else not within your physical family? Years ago, a man, many years ago, a man that we led to Christ, he was rough. And when I say rough, I mean as rough as I've ever met rough, okay? 
really rough. In fact, he pretty much was his own worst enemy before and even after salvation. He was just one debacle after another in his life. Ruining relationships with his attitude, destroyed his marriage, his wife left him, he was a lonely man, he went about with a cloud over his head. Do you know anybody like that? Don't be pointing any fingers, okay? And consequently was in constant need of encouragement and to be confronted from time to time. Then my wife died. I never thought too much about it, but I think he was the only guy in the entire church that never gave me one word of sympathy, not one. I tell you that because about a month later, we were at a church activity. We were back, in fact, we were playing basketball, and there was a break in the action. He walks up to me. He says, hey, pastor. I said, yeah. He goes, now you know how I feel being lonely, huh? And I was so stunned, I, I, I thought, I, maybe, did, what did you just say? He repeated himself. I'm pretty sure that's not what Paul means here, okay? Pretty sure that's not what Paul's talking about here. But he did illustrate that guy what self-absorbed people tend to do. They secretly, or in the case of this man, not so secretly, wish hurt upon another, even a brother or a sister. In the words of James, my brethren, these things ought not to be. Right? So an old man whose wife dies, he's broken up. They've been married for 65 years. He's weeping next door as a little boy. He's just three. He's only maybe three, four, five years old. He crawls up into the old man's lap while he's crying. And later on, his mother said, well, you know, what did you say to him, honey? And and her little son said, nothing. I just helped him cry. I think that's what we're told here. Help him cry. Art Cross has served Sailorville Church for many, many years. He's over 90 years old. He's not known as an emotional person. He is the consummate flatliner. Nothing gets him too high or too low. So I was blessed and challenged deeply when he came to me recently with his new enlightenment of the book of Job. He said, I've been reading through Job again and studying this thing. And I kind of expected, you know, Art to just give me a big litany of, you know, quotes out of the book of Job and maybe some thoughts of his own and, you know, just launch into this teaching mode because he's good at that. But that's not what he did. He told me his insights and they were insightful to me. If you have ever read through Job, you've, had, you've bumped into the theodicy of his friends. You read these friends of his, and, and you can't help but thinking, half the time you read it, this is good stuff here, right? I mean, they're laying down some good stuff throughout the book of Job, and yet as you read it, you've read it before, and you know at the end, God just comes down on him. I mean, when he comes down on these friends at the end of the book of Job, he comes down very hard with these harsh words, you have not spoken to me what is right. In fact, he says that twice. You have not spoken to me, of me, what is right. And yet you read it and say, there's a lot of right stuff in here, God. 
I'm confused. But as Art pointed out, Job needed someone to suffer with him, not preach to him. And that's what they were doing. This was a virtual revelation to me. I'm going to say this twice. When I fail to adjust myself to the joys and sorrows of others, I stand the risk of negating any effect of truth I might be articulating. Did you catch that? I'll say it again. When I fail to adjust myself to both the highs and lows, the the joys and the sorrows of others, then I risk... I stand the risk, at least, of negating any effect truth might have on the person I'm talking to. So, when was the last time you wept for someone else not in your physical family? Rejoice! Weep. Even if you're naturally an emotional person, this is not an easy thing to do when you're not strongly connected to that individual in some way, shape, or form. And yet here we are being called to a very lifestyle of ongoing adjustments, adjusting ourselves to the joys and sorrows of others. Would you like some good news? Here it is. God has adjusted himself to you. God has adjusted himself to everyone here in the person of his son. The glory of God became man. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, even though he adjusted himself to you and me. And so God says, I see your joys, I feel your sorrows, I've taken your sin in the person of my son Jesus. And how's this, stranger? How's this, foreigner? I'm inviting you into my house forever. Forever. If you have never been under the duress of the realization that you are a stranger from God, then you're not a Christian. Because everybody is a stranger before they become a guest. And if you've never trusted Jesus as a result of that, humbled yourself like you heard Chris did, heard it all your life, but humbled yourself and received him, then you're not in the house. And God wants you to come into the house. He's inviting you in. Humble your heart and receive him today. You'll be his eternal guest of honor. And for those of you who know him, how are you doing with the insiders and the outsiders? How's the adjustment going? 
Will you pray with me? Our Father, thank you for the opportunity today to be able to look at yet another chunk of Scripture from this passage on what a dedicated Christian is supposed to look like. And we confess here, we confess now that we've not all done well. I know I haven't. This is a convicting passage for me, Lord. Weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Lord, I know I've experienced jealousy and covetousness. Lord, I know that I I should have felt with those who hurt more than I did. I, I could have entered their lives better, and I want to do better. Help me, Lord, to walk in more personal holiness and adjust myself to you as I adjust myself to others. I pray that would be true of all of our hearts here today. I ask, Lord, that you would be doing something very special, very powerful in many hearts of the believers, of those who claim to know Jesus here. And I pray for those who are still foreigners, still strangers, still outsiders, kind of looking in, saying, I like this. I want this. I want to accept the invitation. I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I believe that Jesus died for me and rose again for me. I I want him as my Savior and my Lord. If that's your heart, express that to God or talk to one of us afterwards. Oh God, we love you. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Help us to grow from it, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.